ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and joining us in person on the other side of the mic is our guest, Bobby Zagoda, Chief Executive Officer of Bitstamp USA and Global Chief Commercial Officer at Bitstamp Global, one of the longest operating cryptocurrency exchanges Launched in 2011, might be the oldest. It is. We uh, we pride ourselves on being the longest running crypto longest exchange running today. Because the the oldest is no longer with us. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. So today we'll be discussing a whole host of issues. Maybe Chicago. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about Chicago. Sure. Um, but obviously, some of the red flags leading up to FTX's collapse, or what at least we can say are red flags, with with the blessing and grace of hindsight. Uh, Bitstamp's approach to managing customer assets, how exchanges are positioning themselves in this current market. Are they, you know, I've been talking to a lot of trading firms and lenders, how they're sort of scaling back or getting more conservative. Bitstamp has always been relatively conservative. So it seems like um, to a degree, you guys were right. But before we dive in, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Huobi, one of the world's leading virtual asset exchanges, has been providing convenient and professional virtual asset management services to more than 50 million users in more than 160 countries for nearly a decade. At Huobi, their mission is to make crypto accessible, to help you understand risks and make informed decisions to protect you and your assets. Learn more today at Huobi.com. This episode is also brought to you by Ledin. From Bitcoin and USDC savings accounts to Bitcoin-backed loans, Ledin's financial services enable you to benefit from your holdings today without selling your Bitcoin. Learn more about Ledin at Ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Bobby Zagata, for coming on the show today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, great to be here, Frank. Yeah. Um, it's weird. It's a weird time to be in crypto, but it's a great time to have a crypto podcast because I get to just really uh, dig into all sorts of thorny, interesting things. In retrospect, what do you think some of the early red flags or warning signs were about FTX? I think we were actually talking about it. It's the most obvious thing, which is you have a trading firm very closely linked to an exchange, which you said before we turned on the mic breaks the cardinal rule. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, firstly, as you mentioned earlier, with the blessing of hindsight, everything becomes, you know, much, much clearer. But, but I certainly recall in, you know, 2019, when I first became aware of FTX and their volume started growing so quickly and having been in the exchange space for a while, that doesn't typically happen that fast. And I was trying to figure out what was going on and it became very clear to me that they were, you know, essentially owned by Alameda Research, um, you know, sister companies, but Alameda was the was the precedent there. And that just, to me, as an exchange guy, you know, just reeks of conflict of interest. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in my career at CME Group, one of the great traditional derivatives exchanges uh, on the planet. And that's a cardinal rule. You just don't 
create anything that stands in the way of an independent, fair and transparent marketplace. That's the role of the exchange. And so that was the first thing that I thought was funny. The second thing was, you know, their approach to regulation. And I mean, this is well-trod ground. I don't need to tell you guys, but you know, uh, there's differences in regulatory jurisdictions and people or companies who are serious about compliance, uh, like Bitstamp, for example, you know, we don't, we don't gravitate to offshore jurisdictions that can't count on uh, real oversight from. So, you know, Bitstamp, as you mentioned, you know, we've been kind of the, we've had the unsexy compliance forward positioning for a long time, and we've got 50 licenses all over the world, and it's a ton of work. And we don't do it because we love working with regulators. We just do it because we want broad adoption, right? We want this technology to to succeed and to prevail. And it ain't going to happen unless, you know, we get some smart regulatory frameworks in place. People won't have the confidence. So, so with FTX and with others in the space, you know, it's more of a lip service approach, I think. And, um, you know, that I think could have been a warning sign or a red flag to institutions and to retail investors. It's interesting. I think we can think of this situation, specifically the FTX Alameda inappropriate relationship in a trinity, in a sense. You have the actual conflict of interest or the potential conflict of interest, and then in hindsight, the actual conflicts of interest. You have the marketplace not caring about those conflicts of interest, and then you have regulators not looking into them. And that sort of fed into this entire situation in my in my view. It's not just that the conflicts existed, it's that no one was tasked with properly looking into them. And maybe that means that traders and different market participants need to require or request more transparency into exchanges and of course, you know, look for potential conflicts of interest. There should be some sort of, you know, industry standard or framework. Have you thought about that? Yeah, uh, we, th we think a lot about this. You know, regulatory frameworks in general, particularly in the U.S., are not well-defined. And there's still too much gray area. There's too much uncertainty. There's still too much opportunity for offshore regulated entities to build big brands and to spend a lot of money in the U.S. So, so I think there's a lot of work to do there. But I would add, Frank, there's another ingredient here, which is we shouldn't lose sight of. It's fraud. Mm. Right. So, yeah, so enough, in yeah. addition to those conflicts of interest and those risky. Well, the conflicts of interest provide the foundation exactly. on which you can commit fraud. Exactly. You can't commit fraud if regulators are watching, if the industry is watching, and if the potential of conflicts of interest don't exist. I mean, maybe you could technically commit some form of fraud if there's no conflicts of interest, but yeah, it doesn't help. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, um, you know, again, going back to the original thought about this this kind of trading company exchange combination, it does create, you know, trading is a very risky activity. So it does create a, you know, ripe environment when somebody gets upside down, you know, then fraud can certainly occur. You know, the other thing I would add to this is, you know, not only, you know, did allegedly the team over there misappropriate customer funds, which again is probably the most egregious thing. That is stealing, right? These are, this is people's money. It's their hard-earned money. They've trusted you with it and you've taken it to apply it to your problem, you know, whatever that may be. And so, you know, I feel like in lots of the, you know, kind of 
unfortunate conversations going on right now relative to Sam, I feel like that's getting lost in the shuffle. Your interview of him is an important exception to that. And you you, um, asked all of the right questions. But other journalists and other media personalities, I think, are giving him a platform. He manipulated a lot of people. And now he's being given a platform to manipulate more people. Yeah. It's pretty disturbing. It is a bit disturbing. And his answers are very... I think they're purposely meant to confuse and manipulate. When asked about misappropriation, right, the explanation is that the margin system, Alameda built up a position that was too large that blew out the customers effectively, and there was this big hole, and that's where the money went. It wasn't, this is his explanation at least, it wasn't that they um, you know, moved it from the pockets of the customers to Sam's pockets, was the scheme that, but it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make it better. He would like us to all believe that makes it excusable, but you know, there's something called responsibility and accountability. And when you screw up, you know, you got to address it in an above board way. And that's, that's not definitely not what happened. Um, there's two other things I'd like to throw out, like that are fascinating to me about this, you know, and, um, and also disturbing, you know, one is part of the story here is I think you know, some of the most well-respected venture capitalists on the planet invested heavily in this company, like in the billions collectively, which which I think created an illusion of due diligence or an illusion of mm. financial integrity here for a lot of people, both, you know, customers of that exchange, but also other, you know, lawmakers, you know, other people who got swept up in Sam's PR machine, they just kind of assumed, well, Susquehanna, you know, some of these, I'm sure they did due diligence on this, but seemingly they didn't because um, from what I've read, they didn't even have the first, (laughs) the first level of governance or financial management, no CFO, um, you know, no board uh, to speak of. Um, So, I'm just shocked that these well-respected, very successful investors, you know, dove in to the extent that yeah. they did. And then the ripple effects of that on yeah. other people, just assuming that there was something that worked here, which is, you know, a, a bit stamp. You know, again, we're, we're like all the way on the other other side Early of the spectrum. sponsor of the show. Did you know that? Who? Uh, Bitstamp. Of this show? Yeah. Yes. Um, so... Okay, apparently you found some sort of quote, or Dean found some sort of quote from Mr. Orlando Bravo at Tama Bravo, one of the investors, obviously, in FTX. What did, what did he say? And this was April, I think you said. And everyone's trying to grab a piece of each pie. So what advice do you give to an FTX to really stampede the competition and stand out? Well, FTX is already doing that. FTX doesn't need a lot of advice. <laughs> that, that's, that's the great thing. It is so unusual to find a leader like Sam that combines an incredible strategic mindset with, at the same time, an exceptional operational and execution rhythm to the business. You usually find greatness in one or the other, and and you have to adjust to the culture of the company and their strengths. In the case of FTX, you have both, plus a pioneer, plus a company that has such a big cultural mission that is beyond any individual that companies like that you just don't run across very often, even in in a decade. Now, 
with our growth equity minority investments. We adjust ourselves to what the company needs. So we will have a candid discussion with the CEO and the leadership team about what are your top three priorities and how much of our input do you want on those? It is better to just pick two or three because as my mentor used to say, if you try to do it all, you'll get to none. And, and you really just have to focus on getting a couple of things right. Well, there you have it. And it, it speaks to your point that you're making, Bobby, which is no one felt the need to look under the hood. There was just this, I don't want to use the word magic because it has a positive connotation, um, sorcery, maybe we could say, behind what this gentleman was able to do. What do you think of that? You seem a bit gobsmacked. Yeah, well, it, it's it's just exactly what you said. I mean, I, I don't know Sam personally, but clearly he had the ability to, you know, create confidence in the people that he was talking to and, and to such an incredible degree. Like it's shocking to me, as I was saying, that these um, great investors didn't do or seemingly didn't do more due diligence, didn't demand a seat on the board. Like I can't imagine, given the numbers in terms of what was invested, that they wouldn't want a bird's eye view of how the company is being managed, how the company is being run. That's how, that's generally how VC and private equity investors operate. And they add tremendous value also in that. And and it sounds like from that quote, and again, I don't mean to extrapolate too much, but, you know, he didn't even feel the need to to add value. He, he was all in on the singular Sam story. And this is very similar to Theranos. I mean, history rhymes, doesn't it? And it was the same sort of, ordeal where if you ever watch the Hulu documentary, I don't know if you ever have. But I have. Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, the older gentleman from Walgreens is just completely unraveled by this woman. And I'm sure like, you know, they're smart people, right? This is, I want to be clear, like this happens to very smart people. It's just these individuals, they have an innate ability to manipulate, I guess you could say. Yeah. So, Let's talk about the auditing part, because this is something that they had this weird metaverse auditor um, that I guess wasn't really. I mean, I asked him on the show, like, why didn't the auditors pick up on this? And um, you guys, I know, have been globally audited by a big four accounting firm, I guess, since the, my notes here say since 2016. That's surprising to me. Correct. Interesting. I'll tell you a funny story. I was looking back into DMs and there were these old chat groups in Telegram between Sam when he was at Alameda trying to raise funds for, you know, basically to like invest and put on these trades. And he um, basically said, they were like, why can't we get an audit of Alameda? And he was like, well, you can't really get an audit as a crypto firm. And this was in 2019. So, I mean, in hindsight, I was like, well, this is pretty disingenuous because I'm pretty sure you can get it up. But in any case, I guess like one question would be, should the audits have like looked at these customer positions or the margin risk and how could they miss this is the basic question, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, the first thing based on what I've heard in the interview with Sam, you know, I feel like there's a bit of a shell game here between the U S entity and the non U S entity. So the U S entity I think was audited, but that's not where the customers and the money was. Um, now, may, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe there was other audits in other part of the company, but I, but it's it kind of sounds like it, it was more like the U.S. entity was there, um, you know, kind of the optics for 
their governance, and uh, but the real company was was offshore. So if that's an in, a correct uh, interpretation, that would be the answer. They did. They just those auditors didn't have access to the real story. I, you know, as somebody who is audited annually globally by a big a big four accounting firm, it does a couple of things. Obviously, it certifies and gives you an attestation to the to the financials, right? But it does more than that. It also make sure that the processes that deliver the financials are sound and controlled. And it is rigorous, I gotta tell you guys. When the processes have to be worked on, guess what that does? It creates a culture. It creates a culture of governance, of doing it right, you know, because not just because there's gonna be an audit next year, but because ultimately it's the best thing to do. It's the right way to do it. It's more efficient than having gaps and having to go back and fix stuff. So all of those were missing at FTX. All of those are missing at a lot of crypto companies, to be honest. Yeah. It's a big ticket. It's super expensive. It's super uh, draining. It's super resource intense. But you know the decisions were made before I was ever at Bitstamp. And I, I credit the founders and the guys who came before me. They, they made the decision, you know what? We're in this for the long haul. Let's do it right. You know, let's not think about the next year. Let's think about the next 20 years. And the world deserves a well-trusted, well-controlled, transparent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, kind of place to participate. Well, I think when you like go through that many cycles, you become a bit more immune to the power of greed. And I think you see a lot of these firms that kind of came into prominence around 2017, they all got smacked this cycle, right? BlockFi, uh, Celsius, FTX. Yep. So they were all part of this greed cycle. Um, you know, I imagine Bitstamp would have a bit of um, luxury of, of sort of not needing to get caught up in sort of that race to the bottom, as it were. That helps too. You guys, have, you know, there's been an exit, as it were. So it's not like you need to please venture capitalists and show like some sort of hockey stick, you know, growth potential or trajectory. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Bitstamp has been majority owned for, you know, several years by a, you know, very supportive and strategic private equity uh, firm, which comes with its own demands, uh, and definitely from a governance perspective, uh, all the way to a performance perspective, but also, you know, great partners. So strategic advice and consultation and, you know, they come from different walks of life and see different things. So it's productive and important, I think. Wobi, one of the world's leading virtual asset exchanges, has been providing convenient and professional virtual asset services to more than 50 million users in more than 160 countries for nearly a decade. At Wobi, their mission is to make crypto accessible, building the go-to hub for the next billion crypto users. Wobi believes crypto shouldn't have any barriers to entry. Wobi is committed to asset and platform security to help you understand risks and make informed decisions to protect you and and your assets. Learn more today at Wobi.com. I also want to give a shout out to Ledin. Ledin, Bitcoin back loans and savings by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. As we've seen, not all digital asset lenders are created equal. Ledin prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with its robust risk management approach. That is why Ledin doesn't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation strategies with its clients' assets and only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. 
Ledin is also dedicated to transparency, which is why they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation. Learn more about Ledin at ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. So proof of reserves has become a hot topic among exchanges in the wake of FTX. What exactly is this for folks, basically? You know, most people, when they think about signing up for an exchange, they just want to buy crypto. But why is this an important element or something that we should start thinking about, talking about? Yeah, it's critically important. I think it's going to be very beneficial for the industry. So the core purpose of it is transparency, right? Any customer should have the ability to understand the assets and liabilities of the firm that they have partnered with, and also with respect to their assets on that exchange. And there's kind of a duality here. On the one hand, the way many exchanges operate is pretty opaque. But on the other hand, you know, blockchain technology, you know, creates the opportunity for, you know, radical transparency in so many ways. So there's, there's real possibilities here. But anyway, proof of reserves, you know, will allow customers to see that the assets on the exchange, you know, exceed the liabilities on the exchange and that their assets, hopefully, depending on, on how these products play out, you know, are aligned with themselves. Now, the current approach here uh, is not perfect, right? It's a, it's a snapshot in time yeah, in general, um, but lots of us are working on this. We've been working on our product here since before the debacle. But we're trying, like I said, we're trying to do it right. So we're trying to do it with our big four auditor. We're trying to do it in a very deliberate way. And we're trying to do it in a way that will be periodic at first, but then hopefully, you know, more of a real time, you know, opportunity for people to see exactly what's going on. Um, but it's complicated. As you guys know, we're, you know, we're dealing with tons of different types of assets, tons of jurisdictions around the world. Uh, so we have to get it right. It's going to take us a period of time to deliver that. Um, but really important for the industry um, and f- for building confidence. We have to rebuild confidence based yeah. on- based How else on can we do that, Bobby? Well, yeah, it's a good question. And, and this is where, you know, it gets awfully frustrating for those of us in the space um, that, you know, kind of the good guys who've been, you know, we haven't taken the sexy route, you know, uh, in terms of how we market ourselves, how we position ourselves. Um, we've taken the slow and steady route and the long-term view, as I mentioned, um, and we've gotten flack for it, and frankly, and you know, we haven't attracted the giant, you know, swings of customers with every bull or bear market. But we're building ourselves for the long term. So, what do we need to do? You know, as an industry, proof of reserves is a really important first step for you know all the players who are serious. The next thing we have to do is educate. I think so. A big challenge here when you have a bull run is so many new entrants come into the marketplace, and in 2021, a lot of mainstream you know, participants came in, which is beautiful. It was a wonderful thing. And and again, if you believe in the technology like we do, it's a great thing. But um, there's an information gap, right? So in terms of how custody works and what it really means, um, you know, to invest versus to trade and, you know, leverage some platforms offer those types of products. There's a lot of ways that you must get educated. So at Bitstamp, you know, we created a Learn Center last year specifically with this in mind. We wanted to deliver bite-sized, digestible information, purely objective, because we don't, again, we're the marketplace. We're not trying to shill a coin. We just want to get the information out. Here's what this token's use case is, right? And here's what its market cap is. Here's what custody means. Very much uh, evident of a CME background. Absolutely. I remember I would always 
try to ask them for like market color and they would say, here are the traders, which was very helpful, by the way. But yeah, you don't want to have a, a view, which when we think about Sam, he always had a view, which yep. is maybe another red flag in hindsight. Yeah. He was commenting on the market as if he was in, in it in a way. Yeah. You don't want your exchange to be in the market. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, and so so that independence combined with education, I think, will help a lot. And then the, the third thing I would add that we have to do to start to rebuild trust is work more proactively with regulators, right? So as an industry, a few of us do that a lot um, anyway. Uh, you know, trying to be helpful and and lend know how. But there's a information gap between lawmakers and industry players as well, as you would expect, right? Um, and there's some complexity to this topic. So we have to put lawmakers in a position where they can make good decisions about how to regulate this space, which will benefit all of us. So often when we think about regulation, it's been within the confines of, like, what are tokens? What are these things? How should they be? What's the taxonomy of these things, as it were? There hasn't been enough conversation around how should these platforms be regulated. The focus has been so much on the tokens rather than the actual folks that facilitate. What type of framework would you be keen to see put in place or anything added from a regulatory perspective? Yeah, I, a couple things um, I think are important. So, you know, firstly, this sounds ridiculous, but mm -hmm. like we need a glossary of terms. <laughs> so BitSamp had a client event last night. We had 20, 20 clients together um, talking about the industry and how to move forward. And one of the points that was made um, was, you know, the word custody isn't even used correctly by most of us, by many of us, mm. right? Because there's custody from a legal perspective and from a regulatory perspective. And then there's custody meaning like, keys and who has them kind of thing. And so we use these terms interchangeably and it confuses a lot of people who didn't grow up in the industry. You know, so for, from a Bitstamp perspective, we again made the decision uh, years ago to have a third party custodian because we don't want any whiff of conflict of interest. And we didn't want to try to position ourselves as the best custodian in the world. There's already companies dedicated to that. So we, you know, we partnered with BitGo a long, long time ago. And that separation, we think, helps. But that doesn't even land with a lot of people because they don't understand the nuance of what we're talking about, that BitGo is a trust company. It's, it's, it's a qualified custodian. It's regulated, et cetera. Um, so I think that's, you know, just getting clarity on the terms is important. Um, and then the next thing is, speaking for the U.S. jurisdiction, you know, there's kind of what appears to be territorialism between regulators here, the CFTC mm -hmm. and the SEC, and to a lesser extent, the OCC or the Fed. And, you know, if we don't get that organized, we're going to lose competitiveness yeah. as a country um, at a crucial time. And we're going to push the innovation, you know, offshore. You know, we have a huge base of business in Europe, for example. It's where we're headquartered. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me the European Union is ahead of us Okay, in terms of driving towards regulatory clarity. And it makes me nervous uh, as a U.S. citizen. We have enjoyed the pole position as a society in terms of the U.S. dollar and our role in the global financial economy, but that ain't going to persist if, yeah, if we don't not, get this it's right. It's not a guarantee that yeah. I'll be there tomorrow. So this kind of opens up some opportunity, right? I mean, we're talking a million customers who now don't have a home, so to speak. I'm sure half of them will probably... <laughs> be uh, more keen to leave crypto for quite some time rather than find somewhere else to punt coins. But what's the strategy to maybe take market share in this environment? 
Yeah, it's a really good point. We've obviously been thinking a lot about it um, as Bitstamp. You know, to some degree, this plays to our strengths. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, we're not trying to exploit this incredibly, you know, egregious fraud Mm -hmm. and the fact that so many people got hurt. I mean, literally got hurt. So, however, we're trying to, to, um, you know, elevate the message around our longevity and the DNA of our firm, which is about regulatory compliance and licensing. We were the first to ever have a license. We've got, you know, uh, as many or more as anyone in the space. We've got a lot more in work, but plus our kind of our governance. We have, you know, every one of our legal entities, and we have four of them, um, not 130 or whatever, but, uh, you know, they all have boards of directors. They all have independent directors on those boards. Our governance process is professional. So we're trying to get that message out in a bit stamp way, which is not trying to be flashy, not trying to you know throw dollars around. It's just trying to be content heavy and as educational as possible. Um, but we are seeing it. I mean, to your point, Frank, in, in the second half of November, um, you know, we had like a 60% increase in institutional registrations versus really? the period prior we had increase in, in retail registrations versus October, you know, albeit October was a pretty sleepy month, uh, we should keep in mind. But our market share, you know, has gone up, you know, pretty dramatically. Also, okay, major player came out. So that's not unexpected. Yeah, but, I'm but looking we, at I was just looking at a chart. And it's actually pretty funny. Just the volumes are, we have market share charts on the da- on the dashboard. So at peak, it looks like FTX was 26%. Yeah. Now it's obviously zero. Slightly less. Yeah, slightly less. Um, yeah, and I mean, market share is a tricky metric. It depends on who you kind of count in the, you know, running um, just the major exchanges or others, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so we're, we're definitely seeing an influx of customers and an influx of attention. So we're getting a lot of inbound, just questions, um, due diligence. So existing and customers who are kind of in our orbit and in our pipeline all are coming with rigorous due diligence questionnaires for us to fill out, which I think is great. Um, I mean, again, some customers do this on an annual basis, but many don't. But now everybody wants to understand exactly who they're partnered with, which is great. That's how it should be. Yeah. Makes me think of my friend Martin Green when we talked about counterparty risk management. Exactly. It's like, this is the thing no one's talking about. He said that right before the Luna blow up. Oh, really? Which was very prescient. For sure. What about DeFi? How are you guys um, wading into those waters? Yeah, good question. So we have a strategy, um, basically a 2023 strategy, which, you know, the timeline is kind of a little bit up in the air at the moment. We're, we're reprioritizing a lot of things based on this situation and, and trying to make sure that the, you know, market warrants, uh, you know, the investment to do it. And with respect to kind of um, the DeFi space, we think it's really important. We think it's incredibly innovative and it's important for the ecosystem, but the world also. Like, I, th- I think the possibilities there are, are endless. You know, you could think of a, a decentralized insurance company. You can think of, you know, a lot of smart contract-based platforms that um, could really simplify a lot of pieces of finance, not just crypto. So we're super supportive of development there. And the the decentralized exchanges have done well since the FTX flame out yeah. as well. So their volumes are up. Now their volumes were coming down steadily from January. Yeah. 
so curious to see what this means, if this is the beginning of a trend or if it's um, more of a spike or, or what have you. And again, bearing in mind that we're in a crypto winter still and, and have a ton of macroeconomic headwinds out there. So it's not a perfect world analysis. How else do you structure or sort of prepare the business for like a prolonged winter? Yeah. So, you know, as you pointed out, Frank, we've been at this going on 12 years. We've seen a lot of cycles come and go and, and we, we have a playbook for it, um, basically. Uh, and it's, you know, um, nothing surprising, but we, we try to do a couple things, obviously manage our cost base and manage it tightly. But in addition to that, focus on the product. So, you know, when you're in a bull run scenario, it's all hands on deck just to service and onboard customers. So in these scenarios, um, which are not fun because the volumes come down, but they are fun because we can perfect the product and perfect the customer experience. And it gives us a chance to basically catch up and get ahead with our agenda. So that's what we're doing. We're highly focused on product and being super targeted in, in our investments. But but again, this is in line with our style. We also, in 2021, didn't hire 2,000 people yeah. like some others did. So we thankfully haven't had to like whipsaw our staffing uh, like others have. How many people are at the firm? Yeah, we're around 600 today. And um, we've just been holding steady there as we navigate this winter. Another red flag was just how often Sam would talk about how lean the team was. Well, now we know it was lean because there are no accountants. I know. I, know. I was. I was like, 80? Really? How do you do that? Yeah. How do you manage a multi-billion dollar exchange with, I think it was like, you know, stripping out FTX US and Alameda, like, you know, 120 people? Yeah. Well, I mean, today at Bitstamp Globally, 180 of the 600 are in compliance-related roles, legal and compliance-related roles. They didn't roles. really have compliance. They had policy outreach. Yeah. Yeah. Lobbying. Yeah. Lobbying. So, so yeah, again, that was a head-scratcher for me when mm -hmm. I saw their staffing numbers, and he was quite proud of them. But mm -hmm. uh, to me, I was like, um, something's missing there. Something indeed was missing. So what else can you say as it pertains to what you're anticipating for the next year. What should we expect out of Bitstamp US? Like I said, we're very um, focused on product right now. So, um, and we're, we're kind of excited about some products that we um, are in the process of rolling out right now. So on the institutional side, we have an OTC RFQ platform that we- Is that new? It is, we, yeah. uh, we formally launched it a few months ago, but you know, it's just a, an alternative for certain types of customers who want to um, you know uh -oh. trade in size? Giving basically. special access? No, 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 not at all. Um, but you know, uh, there's crypto whales out there who want to you know do a big trade, mm -hmm. and you know they'd have to break it into a million pieces if they wanted to you know do it on an exchange. Um, and so it's just a, a white glove kind of service mm -hmm. for that type of client. Um, we also have a, a what we call post trade settlement offering that we're rolling out kind of jurisdiction by jurisdiction, but enables mostly institutions to settle with us on a daily basis versus a real-time basis. It's a capital efficiency for them. We're also really excited about a new retail-oriented experience that we're developing that we'll be rolling out in, in first quarter that we think brings some really useful educational resources together with some you know very, very simple and straightforward buy and sell opportunities for retail participants. So so yeah, we've got a lot going on there. Really excited about it. Um, proof of reserves, as I mentioned, is primary focus for us right now. We had been working on it. Now we're accelerating that timeline so that we can be as transparent as possible in this time. Fantastic. I'd like to thank you for joining us today, coming down to our offices to speak with us. 
Once again, we've been joined by the man, the myth, the legend, Bobby Zagoda, CEO of Bitstamp US and Global Chief Commercial Officer at Bitstamp. Appreciate you taking the time. Where can our listeners learn more about you and what you're working on? Uh, yeah, thanks for asking. Bitstamp.net uh, is where it all starts. And uh, of course, our app is available in the App Store. But uh, Bitstamp.net, there's a lot of resources, including our Learn Center. Fantastic. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Thanks for listening.